The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for this space. Thank you for inviting us here and inviting us into your story. Lord, we come from all different places this morning and in life. And in this story, there are people coming from all different places. Some people recognizing maybe that you've done miracles in our lives and feeling a lot of faith or interest. Some of us maybe um, feeling like Pharisees that you don't fit with our agenda and we're not sure we want in. And others of us may be following you and just sometimes not quite getting it and missing who you are and understanding that you really are the only thing that can fulfill all of the things that we need. So we pray this morning that you will open our hearts, that you will speak through John, and that you will um, allow us to understand whatever it is that we need to know to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So a couple of years ago, Emily and I got to go to Israel, and we saw lots of cool things across the whole country. But my favorite thing that we saw was we got to go up on the Mount of Olives, which is like where Gethsemane was. Jesus spent a lot of time there. It's where his ascension happened. Uh, we went on the Mount of Olives, but in across to the west on the Mount of Olives, there's this little valley, and then there's the Temple Mount where, where this massive, massive, massive structure was. Uh, it's, I mean, I really can't overstate how huge it was. Um, and Jesus, in this, in this day, which we call the triumphal entry, uh, I want you to imagine what it would have been like. Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives, and he begins descending down into the valley, and he goes toward the eastern gate of the city, and it's the week of Passover, which means a ton, a ton of people, over a million people are crammed into this relatively small city. And they've come out in throngs to meet him, and, and they're jammed in together, and they begin to, to cry out these things that are from Psalm 118. These, these uh, words that were, were prophecies, they say, um, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Hosanna is a word that means save us or rescue. 
So imagine that you're on, a, you're on an island, you're shipwrecked, and you've been all alone for, for months and months, and then coming towards you, you see a ship. We're saved! Rescue! As Jesus is on the donkey and making his way into the city, this is what people are shouting out. Hosanna, we're saved! It's rescue! They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Imagine you're a prisoner of war, and you've been in captivity And through the bars in your prison, you can see the flag of your country. You can see the ambassadors of your country, the ones who've come in the name of your country, have come to rescue you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's representative. This is Yahweh's representative coming to the people. He's here. And then they say out loud, blessed is the king of Israel. All along, all throughout the Gospels, people at different times were trying to force the kingship on Jesus. And here, on one of the busiest days, in in the busiest seasons of, of Israel, the people are declaring Jesus as the king. And we see Jesus not denying, but living in to these expectations. The people knew that Isaiah had given this prophecy where the king would come to them riding on a colt, on a donkey, and Jesus didn't reject this imagery. He embraced it. He, he saw the, the donkey and he sat on it and he, and he rode gently into the city as the people cried out these words of Psalm 118 and they waved palm branches of peace. And other gospels tell us they laid out their cloaks before him so that the donkey would walk on the cloaks and on the palm branches. It was a beautiful and a powerful scene. And it was also an extremely complicated scene. In 2008 and 2009, Emily and I lived in Honduras as missionaries. And uh, in in early, uh, late spring of 2009, Emily and I woke up one morning and uh, we turned on the TV and and we, for whatever reason, we got uh, the, the news channels from New York. So we're watching the news, Good Morning America or something one day. And the Honduran government broke through the broadcast, which is something they did fairly regularly. And uh, they broke through the broadcast, and there was this special announcement that in the middle of the night, members of the military had broken into the presidential compound, and they had kidnapped and exiled the president, Manuel Zelaya. And they took him to Costa Rica. Congress had ordered Roberto Micheletti to be his successor, and Overnight, CNN was reporting there was this coup d'etat in Honduras, and we're there. We're in the middle of it. And it was this big, dramatic scene for months and months because Mel, the, the president, Manuel Zelaya, they called him Mel. He had this big old mustache. Mel was in Costa Rica, and within two days of his exile, he's still doing business on an international level as if he is still the president of Honduras. And then you've got Micheletti, who's, who's in office establishing his cabinet. Mel's cabinet is still there. And they're wondering, like, well, who's president? Who's in charge? Mel's people are all, like, staying in their offices. And Micheletti's trying to build a, a transitional government. And it's really unclear what the full story is. It's a mess. We were up, um, you know, we're trying to do life as normal. We drove up in the mountains where we had worked. And because this was just very Honduras, uh, at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the government came on the TV again, and they said, uh, we're going to have a nationwide curfew for 5 o'clock, so go home. 
So we're four o'clock out in, out in the mountains, and we had to go home, and the whole nation was driving home right then. And we had 24-hour curfews for a while, and it was a bit of a mess. But the whole story reached its climax when uh, Mel was, was threatening to come home. And so Emily and I went up on the, the, the rooftop of the hotel, the apartments where we were living, and we could see Mel in his plane circling Tegucigalpa, the city. And everyone was like, what is going to go down when he gets there? Well, the military goes on the runway, and they're not going to let him land. So, okay, well, there's no clashes today. But then another day comes, and Mel says he's going to make his triumphal entry into the country by land. And he does, and his supporters go out to him. The whole thing's a mess. There's rioting. CNN is showing pictures of, like, tires burning in the street and militias. And, um, and, and, and the whole thing was just very chaotic for the populace, all of us who are kind of guessing what's going on. But at the middle of this whole thing, and it turned out fine, we're here. The CNN, okay, this, uh, a lesson here, CNN shows the one block of the city where there's rioting. Everyone else is going on life as normal. We're still going to the grocery store. But at the middle of this whole thing, there's a conflict about power, about who's in charge, about whose vision of the preferred future is going to be the one that people pay attention to. And, and these people, and then how are they going to execute on that vision? And who are going to be the ones entrusted with figuring out how that vision is carried out? And similarly, at the time of Jesus, you have these competing factions with competing ideas of what the future should look like. You've got uh, the Romans who are in charge, who are the overlords, who are kind of a quiet character in the whole story in John's gospel until the end when Jesus stands before Pilate. But you've got the Romans who are the foreign overlords. They're running the show. They're fine with, with the Jews worshiping the way that they do as long as they know who's rightfully in charge. That's the Romans. Then you've got the Sadducees who have colluded with Rome. And they're always like, there was no collusion, no collusion. Um, could, I mean, it could have, could have failed. It could have been worse than that. Um, but the Sadducees colluded with Rome, and, then, and as a result of which, they got to run the temple. They were powerful, powerful people. And as a matter of, of interest and trivia, they explicitly did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. You got the Pharisees who were like these cultural police, and most of the time when you read in the Scriptures, Jesus clashing with people, it was often the Pharisees. The Pharisees, I believe, were well-intentioned, but, but they were off at the core, which we'll talk about. The Pharisees believed if we're holy enough, if we're right enough, we'll get our land back and we'll get the temple back and the Romans will get out of here. Then you've got the Essenes who believe, let's just withdraw completely from society. We'll create our own little holy sect and then we'll ensure our own personal salvation and bring in the end of all, the end of all things in times. And then you've got the Zealots, who Peter was a Zealot, who are ready to throw down at a moment's notice. And so when Jesus is in the garden and the Romans come to arrest him, Peter's the first to get out a sword and he starts swinging. You've got all of these groups of people at the time of Jesus with a different vision of what it looks like to live into their preferred future, and all of them are there when Jesus is riding in on the donkey. All of them are watching, and to each of them, Jesus was a threat, but he's also a conundrum because he didn't play according to any of their playbooks. And so as he rode into the city, they all heard him and they all saw him, the, the shouts of the people uh, through very different lenses. 
You got the Romans who hear this, blessed is the king of Israel, and they hear it as treason. They're committing treason against Caesar. You got the, the Sadducees who hear this as anarchy. They're going to upset the balance if they start calling this guy the king. You got the, the Pharisees who hear this as heresy. You got the Essenes who aren't even there to listen. And then you got the Zealots who are seeing this whole thing as a call to arms. Maybe Jesus is ready to pick the fight with Rome that we're all hoping for. This is the equivalent of someone riding in a motorcade into Washington, D.C. with people playing Hail to the Chief, and they're all calling him the new president while the current president is still in office. This would be a cause for tremendous discord and fight and controversy. Now, Jesus was always a threat. Jesus was always a threat to those people who were in power, but something had happened just before this scene that upset the balance even more, that really freaked the people out. You already know what it was? Lazarus. In John chapter 11, Jesus gets word that his friend has died. And Mary and Martha, that text that we just read, Jesus shows up and, and Lazarus has been in the tomb four days and they're weeping and he weeps with them and we see such beauty in his identification with their suffering. But Jesus goes to the tomb and he says, roll it away. And he stands in front of the tomb and Mary and Martha are like, please don't do this. He's like, There's going to be stench when we open that. And he opens up the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he walks out alive. And the people flip their lids. And you think like, okay, water to wine, that's a cool miracle. But Jesus just raised the dead. The guy had been in the tomb four days. He may have suffocated if he wasn't dead anyway. He probably stank. He was decomposing. And Jesus turned backwards the laws of nature. And he made this dead guy live. And the word spread. And it came to these people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. And they conspire together. And this is what it says in John eleven forty seven and 48. They said, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And what happened immediately after that, if people keep following him, the Romans are going to take away our temple and our nation. What happens immediately after that is they conspire to kill Jesus. And here's what stood out to me this time. Not only Jesus, they also wanted to kill Lazarus because Lazarus was the living proof of what he had done. And they wanted to take him out. And then it leads into Mary washing Jesus' feet and then this triumphal entry. Jesus knows exactly what he's walking into. What blew my mind as I studied this passage is I'm thinking about this conversation within the Sanhedrin, within the leaders of the temple and the, the spiritual heart of Israel. These are the people who are supposed to get it. These are the people who are supposed to be setting uh, the pace spiritually for Israel. And instead of seeing Jesus who just turned back death as the greatest miracle, they saw it as a threat and they conspired to kill him and to kill the proof of what he had done. And why? Because it would have cost them in their mind their land and their temple. The land and the temple were their gods, were the thing that they most cherished in this life. 
And the sad thing is, if you know the story of the Old Testament, the Jews here didn't learn the lesson of exile. If you go back 500 years and 700 years in the Old Testament, uh, the people were living in the land, but they were committing all kind of adultery with false gods. They were worshiping idols. And Yahweh, through the sent prophets, and He warned them, come back to me, come back to me, get rid of these idols, come back to me, or you're going to lose everything. And they didn't pay attention, and they lost. In 722, Assyria invaded, and they lost the north. And then in 587, Babylon came in, and they lost the south. They lost the temple. They lost Judah. And they were scattered into the nations, and they were taken into exile. And in exile, the prophet still said, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And I've got good news if you do. Leads into the story of Zerubbabel rebuilding uh, the city and ne- the temple and Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of the city. And the people come back. They've returned to Yahweh and, in res- and they get back their land and they get back their temple. But here we go, 500 years again, and they've fallen into the same traps where they've made their temple and they've made their land into idols and they've forgotten the one who gave them these gifts in the first place. They didn't learn the lesson of exile. Tim Keller, who's brilliant, uh, wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And in Counterfeit Gods, he said, the human heart is an idol factory. We're churning them out left and right. The human heart is an idol factory. He says there, there are four characteristics of idols or four uh, ways of, of describing things that could in us become idols. The first thing is anything that we love more than God runs the risk of being an idol, anything that we love more than God. Second, anything that absorbs our hearts and our minds more than God runs the risk of being an idol. Third, he says, anything we seek to give us what only God can give us, value, significance, security, runs the risk of being an idol. And then fourth, he says, anything so central and essential to life that if we lose it, life no longer feels worth living. The human heart is an idol factory. The thing about the idols that these, the Sanhedrin had chosen is that they were great things. They were good things. The land was God's gift. The temple was God's gift. The Torah was God's gift. These are all good things that God had given to His people, but the people loved the gifts more than the giver of the gifts, and so the gifts became idols. And because they'd sold their souls to idols, they missed out on the beautiful and new thing that God was doing among His people, which was even better than what they could have imagined. And in just days, when Jesus was betrayed and He was standing in front of Pilate, the Roman prefect, these people who were charged with being the spiritual leaders of Israel, would say before Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And then they shouted, crucify, crucify. Their idolatry was made complete. But how does this happen? How does it happen? This is what idols do. This is what things that aren't designed to take the place of greatest significance in our lives do when we put them there. Idols make the world smaller and darker. 
Idols make our hearts harder. They make us more controlling, more fearful, more paranoid, more selfish, more defensive. And idols blind us to the beauty and the possibilities of all that God could do and is doing. They were worried about one nation. God was going to take the nations of the earth. God wasn't content to have one nation bear His glory. He wanted the whole earth and all of the cosmos to reflect His glory. But they were thinking in small ways because they were worshiping an idol. And for us, whether it's success or sexuality or money or marriage or status or a substance, whether it's a hobby or a habit or our country or a car, Idols can be ministries, idols can be churches, idols can be a sense of calling. Anything that we look to in order to give us ultimate significance and meaning and value and security, anything that we love or that we allow ourselves to be absorbed by that's not God is an idol. And that thing, no matter how right or good or noble, can cost us everything. It's not usually that we, wrong, that we love the wrong things. It's that our, our loves are all out of order. We're not loving first what we should. And Jesus is still the embodiment of the God who at Sinai said, I am the Lord your God and you will have no other gods before me. And so I'd ask for us. I, I was reflecting on this for myself yesterday. Who or what runs the risk of being an idol in your life, it's probably a good thing. It could be a relationship. It could be a child. It could be a vocation. It could be a picture of a, a preferred future that you have. Who or what runs the risk of being an idol for you? Who or what are you serving? I've loved studying Jesus through John. And I love the pictures where, you know, Jesus blesses the kids. Oh, so good. Jesus changes the water into wine. He preserves the dignity of this couple. So good. I love how Jesus includes the Samaritan woman in, in, in reaching the evangelization of Samaria. Love it. All through this, we see Jesus just acting in all of the ways that we hope God would be like and even better. And we construct... If we only think in part this very rosy and shepherd-like image of, of Jesus. But don't make any mistake. Jesus is here to rule. Jesus is here to be king and to establish his kingdom. And his kingdom requires unadulterated allegiance. Unrivaled allegiance. But we can give our allegiance to this kind of king because we've seen how he's been and we see what he does in his first acts as king. When on Thursday, as we'll talk about, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And on Friday, he does what he calls exaltation. It's to go to the cross and to be humiliated and shamed. And on Saturday, he goes where dead people go. He lives that Saturday in silence before the victory of Sunday. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you abandon your idols, if you lose yourself, if you lose your picture of a preferred future, if you'll put those idols 
the table for sacrifice and you follow me. Give your allegiance, unrivaled and unadulterated, to me. You're going to find it. So that means all my stuff, all my time, all my love, all of my relationships, we surrender to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. So what's your idol? So I was praying this morning, praying for you. I was remembering the story of, of um, when the Ark of the Covenant was among the people of Israel and it had been stolen and they took it to the temple of Dagon, this foreign Canaanite god. And they came in one morning and into the temple of Dagon and, and the statue had fallen over and its hands were broken off. They put it back up, and they came back the next day, and the statue, the head, had broken off. It's praying with God for us that we would eagerly abandon our idols. Idols of wealth, of success, of sexuality. Whatever it is for you, whatever good thing, whatever beautiful thing that shouldn't be loved first, but should be loved second or third or fourth that together we might be a community that throws these things down and pledges wholeheartedly and unreservedly our allegiance to Jesus. That's my prayer for us. The table is a great place of confession, a place to say, here's, here's where we've blown it. Here's where I've served false gods. Here's where I've made idols, and it's a great place to lay some things down. And so I'm going to leave you some prayer and if, if something comes to mind for you that's an idol, confess it. Let it go. The thing that you're most afraid of being your idol that you least want to confess and surrender is probably yours. As we pray, would you surrender that? If you give up your life, you'll get it back. Let's pray. Jesus, we know we can trust you. No, you can trust you because you waited for the right time, for the time appointed by your Father to take your rightful place of authority. You've demonstrated that you are eminently trustworthy and good and kind. And we also see that you're here to reign and to rule. May you rule over this church. May you establish your reign in our hearts. Would you forgive us for making idols? For creating false gods, whether it's success in ministry, success at work, whether it's family, whether it's wealth. And our hearts can deceive us by justifying our idols because they're good things. But would you search our hearts? David said, who can discern their own sin? By your spirit, would you clarify and convict what is true in us about who we're serving? And would you free us for joyful obedience? Amen.